So Mary, how was the snow? The snow was brilliant, thank you. So for the listeners, I've, I've just got back from a week snowboarding. Whereabouts were you? In Valterenne in France. Nice. So, yeah, three valleys, fresh snow, fresh mountain air, loads of cheese, come back feeling quite refreshed. A bit of blue sky thinking, high level meetings, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Important to take a break from that from time to time. Great. And I'm raring to go with this podcast recording. Super. Did you have a good flight back? Any unexpected turbulence or anything? Well, Dan, actually, I got the train back. Ah. So, yeah, avoiding those uh, short-haul flights that are so bad for the environment. Saving the planet, you know, one journey at a time. So you're being more of a conscious consumer? A little bit, yeah. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Today on Investment Uncut, we welcome special guest Claire Jones, who heads LCP's responsible investment team. Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Claire, would you like to go ahead and tell the listeners a bit more about what you do and your expertise at LCP? Well, I'm responsible for making sure that we integrate ESG considerations, that's environmental, social and governance, into our work both with clients and our research into investment managers. So in practice, that means that I get involved in developing materials for our client teams to use, making sure they've got the right knowledge and expertise. And then on the research side, both embedding responsible investment into the research that all of our researchers are doing, but also researching specialist ESG products myself. Right, great. Before we get into that in more detail, what's one thing people should know about you that they won't find on your LinkedIn profile? On a Monday evening, you can find me singing in Winchester a cappella, which is a group of about 40 ladies. Oh, great. We sing in four parts of unaccompanied harmony, a wide range of, of popular and more traditional music. You have to let us know when you're next doing, uh, do you do gigs and stuff? And... Well, you certainly do, and we yeah. compete as well, so I will let you know. Oh, oh great. Fantastic. Please do, yeah. Okay, well, on to responsible investment. And I guess... Sitting here in 2020, it's clear that it's a massive theme today, but you've been working in the area for a long time. So why don't you talk to us about when you first started looking at this area and some of the changes that you've seen over that time? Yeah, so my journey into responsible investment started quite a long time ago, back in about sort of 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. That was when I started to become really passionate about environmental issues like climate change. And I started to get involved in groups like Friends of the Earth in my spare time. And then I read a book by Jonathan Porritt about capitalism as if the world matters. And for the first time, I started to see the relevance between the environmental and social issues I cared about as an individual Mm -hmm. with the work that I was doing on a day-to-day basis, working with many large pension schemes. At that time, I was working as a pensions actuary, so more involved in the funding of pension schemes. But that was what triggered my interest in investment. And over the years, my role has gradually evolved. I took some time out in 2011, 2012 to do a master's degree in sustainability. Right. I worked in a sustainability role for a couple of years and then looked to combine my background in pensions with my expertise in sustainability. And that led me to coming back to LCP, where I previously worked, to uh, get more involved in sustainability for the pensions and investment industry. And I've been working full-time response investment for about two and a half years now. That's really interesting. So would you say that some of the recent momentum we've seen behind that movement is maybe coming a little bit from, 
other people starting to connect some of the choices they're making as consumers with what's going on in investment in a larger sense, as you talked about before? I think that is important. One of the reasons why we're finding more interest from clients now is that they do see the relevance of environmental and social issues to their day-to-day lives. Perhaps as an individual, they, you know, they care about these things personally, but also they're seeing the relevance in their day job, you know, perhaps working in a corporate role. They're seeing issues like climate change becoming important for the businesses they operate in. And so they're starting to ask, well, how does this affect my the pension scheme investments? Or in the case of charities, they're seeing interest from their sort of members and their donors mm-hmm. who care about these issues and expect their views to be reflected in the way that the charity is investing the money that is donated to it. And I guess it, it sort of feels like there's a lot of people trying to make that connection between their personal beliefs and how that impacts financial markets. I guess through today, hopefully we'll get some tangible examples from you, because I think a lot of my clients in sort of early days of speaking about this, they sort of think this all sounds really good, but I can't quite finalise that link in terms of exactly how the impact, how these issues impact financial markets. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm. But it must be quite rewarding from your perspective to have been looking at this area for so long and, and see the progress that's happened recently. Or do you still... You don't want to push for even more progress and and to to advance things to sort of where they need to be. I think there's been huge progress over the last few years. This has gone from being a fairly niche concern to one that is truly mainstream. We've seen regulators across the board really engaged in the topic. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be complacent because there's a lot further to go. At the moment, it's a lot of discussion about what is the issue? What should our policy be on ESG topics? We're not seeing a great deal of action, if I'm honest yet, in terms of actually moving money and investing differently. I think we're at that tipping point where that's about to start to change. What do you think will be the sort of final trigger for that to actually change into action? I mean, some of it is just building on the on the momentum that we're already mm. seeing. You know, the mm. fact that many trustee boards take a long time to make decisions. So it's not necessary that we need an additional trigger over the ones they've already had, just time for things to work through the system. Pension scheme trustees had to put in place policies on, on ESG factors last year. And now they're starting to think about how they implement that in practice. And I think that's going to be an important catalyst. Because it's always an interesting debate, isn't it? The sort of the carrot and the stick. I mean, regulation can often drive behaviour, but it seems to me there's more to it than this. Because as we said, there's almost like a social movement going the same way as the regulation. And I always think that people don't always love to be told what to do, do they? So to what extent do you think you need to nudge people and tell people versus let them figure it out for themselves and come to that conclusion? Is it a bit of both? I think it is a bit of both. And we definitely see some leaders who want to adopt response investment principles without nudging from the regulators. They believe that it's the right thing to do, that it will deliver better returns in the long term for their beneficiaries, whether that's pension scheme members or or charity beneficiaries. But there are others who do need that regulatory stick to act. And perhaps also the examples of investors going before them and showing them what can be done and the benefits that it can, can bring. Okay, let's um, drill down a little bit onto the question of investment managers and some of the things that they're doing or been under pressure to do. So you did a piece of work which came out earlier this year, which surveyed quite a wide variety of asset managers. You want to just talk us through Mm. some of that work? That's right. One of the things that's really important to our clients is to understand how their investment managers are taking account of responsive investment practices. Mm. And so for the last 10 years or so, we've been conducting a survey every two years of investment manager practices. What we do is we invite about 150 managers to take part, which is essentially all the large institutional investment managers in the UK, including all the ones that our clients have got investments with. And we ask them about 10 in-depth questions on various things to do with their policies and processes, not just on ESG topics, 
specifically, but also about stewardship practices like voting and engagement. Right. And we analyse those answers to assign a, a score to each manager on a one to four scale where four is best practice. We've just published the most the results of the most recent survey. And the reason that's so important, I suppose, to ask the managers is because a lot of our clients the way their views get implemented is through the manager. And they might have very strong views in something, but if the manager's not doing anything, it doesn't matter so much, does it? So it really is crucial what managers are. Absolutely. Our clients are delegating the day-to-day management of their investments to to those managers. So they rely on the managers to implement those, those ESG practices. So that means they need the information from things like our survey, both when they're deciding which managers to appoint and then when exercising ongoing oversight to make sure that their expectations in this area are actually being followed in practice. And I guess, so you mentioned this has been going now for 10 years, obviously quite a long time period. What sort of trends have you noticed over that period in terms of how managers react to our survey and the sorts of responses that we get? Probably the most significant thing is the response rate, the level of engagement we see from managers. In the early days, the response rate wasn't all that high, you know, maybe right. sort of 60% or so. And then about 2015, we made it clear to the managers that this was something that was going to start affecting our overall investment ratings right. and hence their chance of being put forward to clients. Okay. At that point, the response rate shot up. So carrot and stick coming back there again, I guess, <laughs> again. Absolutely. Um, but since we've had that high level of participation, we've started to see an improvement also in the quality of the answers that we've had. And it's very right. clear that almost all managers are putting a significant amount of effort into responsible investment these days. And that makes our job increasingly challenging because it means that we need to pick beneath the surface, not just take claims at face value, but ask the sort of questions that are going to tease out genuine differences. Yeah. And I guess one of my sort of longstanding concerns in this area is I guess greenwashing, which it's probably a bit jargony, but essentially managers knowing what they should be saying. But yeah, it's it's, it's easy to craft a well-written paragraph that sounds great and brilliant on paper isn't it but but I suppose it's about getting beyond that isn't it it is and and some of the questions that we ask that aim to do that so for example we ask specifically about training you know ask what proportion of of the investment professionals have had a certain level of response investment training over the previous couple of years Mm -hmm. because that's the sort of thing that's harder to to fake yeah but actually probably the most important thing that we do is that we combine the survey with our regular manager research program Right. So in our survey, we can ask general questions about the manager's approach. But what you really need to do is find out what's happening on the ground. Yeah. Mm. So our research teams are routinely asking questions when they meet with managers mm-hmm. to find out really whether the central policies are being followed in practice. Right. Yeah. You know, what difference is really making to the way the money is being managed? Yeah, I mean, that's the key, I suppose. Isn't it? I mean, one thing that I found quite interesting was this question of board level accountability among mm. managers. That seems to be one that's quite a clear cut question, I suppose, isn't it? And that seems to be one thing that has changed a little bit in the last few years, isn't it? Yes, that's right. We believe that it's important to have somebody at board level who's accountable for this because strong leadership is important for actually getting buy-in throughout the level. Yeah, and otherwise, it, otherwise you can sort of palm it off somewhere and sort of just have a department that, somewhere that looks at it. That's right. It sends a very clear message from the top that this is something that's yeah. important to the firm and, and other people respond to that. So we have seen a shift over the last few years. There's a, an important example I can give in, in terms of the way that the survey can influence manager practices. Because right. after our last survey, I had a number of conversations with managers where they asked, well, how can we improve? Where do you think our weaknesses lie? Right. And one of them said to me when I, I said, well, ideally, we'd be looking for somebody at board level to be accountable right. for this. He said, I agree. And I would love to be able to tell my superiors that that's what we need to do. And so you're 
survey feedback will help right. me to make oh, the case internally. So, so it just carry that extra weight for them that, to make that, their case. That's right. And it, mm. it demonstrates the importance of doing surveys like this. It isn't just for information. It is about driving improvements through mm. the industry, which ultimately is for the benefit of our clients and for their beneficiaries. Yeah. Yep. And I certainly from presenting the results of our survey over the years to my clients, if managers score below average, you mentioned earlier, it's a score from one to four. So we can't sit on the fence. You're either below or above average. There are serious questions on, you know, on us. Why are my managers not up to scratch here? Mm. And a number of clients sort of writing to managers saying this isn't good enough. So it's I've experienced it firsthand that it's really sort of prompted action, which mm. is great. Another thing that I picked out was the question of uh, managers being signatories to the UN principles for responsible investment, which I guess it came out around 2006, was it? Yes, yeah. that's right. And I suppose they, for those listeners that don't know, they're a set of principles that organisations sign up to govern how they approach that responsible investing area. Is that roughly right? Yes, that's right. It's six high-level principles that managers mm. sign up to. And indeed, asset owners can sign up to them as well. And it's a high-level signal of commitment to responsible investment. And some of the people who sign up are at a very early stage of their ESG journey, and it's more of a, an indication of their aspiration, their commitment. But at the other end of the scale, you've got investors who've been signed up to the principles for you know, more than a decade, and it's really embedded in their processes. But it's sort of getting up to not so much 90% of the managers we surveyed have signed up to that now. So it's becoming pretty much a given, isn't it, among managers? It, it is. And one of the important things about PRI is that they do require every signatory to report annually on what yeah. they're doing, and they undertake an assessment themselves. Now, at the moment, those assessments are sort of private. Investment managers can choose whether or not to share the scores with us or our clients. Okay. But quite often, we find they are willing to share the scores, and that then provides some additional information. So you mm. can see which of the PRI considers to be strong performers, which are weaker. And indeed, those that aren't really showing genuine commitment can potentially be delisted by the PRI. Okay. Do you think they've been helpful in driving the, some of the change we've seen over that time? I think it has been helpful, not least because they're a really important resource for investment managers to share views on on how to do response investment and to develop industry practices. So I guess if signing up to the UNPRI has become a bit more commonplace among the managers we look at, what do you find differentiates different managers? What looks like what's good in ESG? We look for a range of things. At the end of the day, one of the most important things is the evidence of on-the-ground implementation by investment managers. We look for the evidence that the investment team are actually being influenced by the ESG information that they're seeing, that it is influencing buy and sell decisions. But we look for that to be coupled with other things like good exercise of, of voting rights in equity holdings, but right. across all asset classes, engaging with the issuers of securities and regulators and policymakers, looking to drive better practices on ESG and other topics across the market. There's an interesting point, isn't it? Because those are two quite different angles. I suppose the the stewardship and the voting piece, I mean, that applies to managers regardless of the investment decisions they're making around this. I mean, it applies obviously to passive managers, of course, who Mm. who aren't taking active views on those stocks. I suppose that's something that all managers can, should be taking your view on. That's right. And depending on the type of manager, that they will exercise stewardship in different ways. So as, as you alluded to, for, for passive managers, then stewardship is really important because that's the only way that they yeah. can express a view on ESG topics, given they themselves don't have a choice about which index they're tracking and hence which securities they're holding. Whereas on the active management side, you would look to see a link between the stewardship activities that are taking place and the investment decisions the extent that there is dialogue going on with companies and information is forthcoming about how the company is being run and its plans for the future and how how well it's managing things like ESG risks and opportunities, Mm -hmm. that should be feeding into investment decisions. 
And in, in terms of the voting, what sort of things are going on, particularly from the passive managers? Is it sort of proxy votes and resolutions at shareholder meetings? Is that what we're talking about there? That's right. So a listed company will have a, an annual general meeting with a dozen, two dozen different motions on there. And some of them are very standard, like accepting report and accounts and re-electing yep. directors, mm-hmm. and others are more controversial. And what we look for is that managers, first of all, are exercising all of those votes where practicable, but also that they're taking a considered view on each one, that they're not just routinely voting with management, that they're Mm. prepared to stand up and express a view and vote against management where appropriate. And also that they're not relying too much on third party proxy voting advisors, that they are instead making judgments themselves. I suppose in the past, there was maybe the feeling that there was a bit of a clubby culture between some managers, some holders and chairmen and boards, and, and they perhaps weren't voting against them as strongly as they could do. That's right. But for the last couple of surveys we've done, we have seen a, a high proportion of votes being exercised against management. Typically around a third of AGMs see right. an investment manager voting against at least one resolution. Okay. Is that a good level, would you say? Or is I would say so. Of course, it varies very much from investor to investor. You know, to come back to the differentiation between active and passive, we probably expect to see a higher proportion of votes against them for a passive manager who has no choice about which companies to invest in. Whereas right. some of the active managers oh, tell so, us yeah. that they normally vote with management because they've only invested in a company where they believe mm. that management yes. is, is strong and running the company well. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. And there were some resolutions last year, weren't there, I think, around things like asking management to produce scenario testing around warming and those sort of things, those examples of sort of proxy votes where this was happening? Yes, yeah, so you get two types of, of votes at, at AGMs. Most of them are, are standard management resolutions, which have been put forward by the company. But yeah. every year you'll get a certain number of shareholder resolutions, which have been put forward by investors. Mm. And they're quite often on topics such as climate change. We've seen a number of those over the years. And, and they started off as fairly straightforward requests for better disclosure. But what we've seen over the last year or two is that they've become more forceful and asking for things like business plans that are compatible with the the Paris Agreement climate targets. How is the business going to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions over time, Mm. potentially down to net zero in a decade or or few's time? So obviously we're asking these questions around how the managers are voting, but it seems to me there's also more and more sort of NGOs and organisations who are keeping tabs on these things because it's, it's sort of become well known that these are important and influential votes. There's quite a lot of scrutiny on it now. Isn't it? There is, and there's scrutiny on companies and there's also scrutiny on investment managers. Yeah. For example, there have been a number of reports published which have looked at how the different investment managers have voted on these climate resolutions. And in some cases, managers voting almost always in favour of greater climate disclosures and climate strategies and and business plans. And then there are other managers who rarely support such resolutions, even where perhaps they've taken a strong corporate line on Mm. climate change. And so the investment manager will say publicly that climate change is important and they aren't supporting these votes. And that's the sort of thing that activists and NGOs have have Mm. seized upon. Right. I mean, you singled out climate change there as, as an example And there's probably a bit of, again, carrot and stick to this as well. Mm. But could you just take a step back and sort of talk about why is it climate change is being singled out a bit more? I think a lot of people are of the view that climate change is the single most important ESG topic. That is my view in that Mm. it is clearly a very significant material issue that is going to have huge implications for financial markets. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it is so significant is because it's systemic. It is going to affect every company in the economy to some extent. And in some cases, it will have a huge impact, particularly companies that are producing fossil fuels or whose business model is heavily reliant on fossil fuels. For Mm -hmm. example, electricity generators or manufacturers of petrol and diesel cars. Climate change and the 
policy measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions have the potential to completely overturn their business models. And so that's a really important issue for investors. And that's why climate change has had so much focus. And where this is being integrated in investment decisions, I I think a lot of people sort of jump to the conclusion that if you're taking this stuff into account, it simply means screening out whole industries and companies. But is that always the approach that tends to be taken or...? These days, it tends not to be the approach that's taken. It is the traditional approach. When ESG topics were first considered, that tended to be the favourite approach. And indeed, that was coming at it more from an ethical angle. So perhaps taking a view that the investor didn't want to hold any companies that manufacture tobacco, for example. And that would be expressing a moral view. Whereas response investment is much more focused on taking account of ESG factors to improve financial performance. So that requires you to think about it an individual company level, whether the risks and opportunities faced by that particular company are properly reflected in the price of the security or not. Yeah. And so that approach then doesn't lend itself to exclusions where it, it is contingent on the price of each security. You can't make blanket exclusions. Yeah. And I suppose that brings us then to the, the obvious question of data. So we've been mm. applying these tilts to different weightings, I guess, according to these factors. And so I suppose one needs to have a, a sort of data set that you can analyse to try and take a quantitative view on that. Is that how it's worked? That's right. And ESG data is a huge topic. There are issues around the availability and quality of that data. And in fact, that was one of the more positive findings from our responsible investment survey, the level of due diligence and care that managers are taking to get ESG data in from a number of different providers and to, to apply various checks and balances to make sure that they can trust in the data that they've got. But at the end of the day, there are limitations in the information that's currently available. And so investment managers have to make a judgment on how to use that data. Yeah. Um, so one, it's an actively managed approach, then clearly you can apply subjective judgment. Yeah. Whereas in a passively managed approach, you have to think about whether the ESG metrics are actually suitable mm. for including in, in a formulaic approach to construct a different index. We've focused in our example so far quite a lot on equity managers and obviously you know there's Mm, the obvious performance link and the voting that's attached to holdings. Is it just an equity play though or is this wider than that? These days it most definitely isn't just an an equity play. It's true that that's where a lot of responsible investment activities started off and that's where the practices are most well developed Mm. but now it is a consideration across the board. That was another notable finding from our most recent response investment survey in that if you look at the managers who'd improved their scores from the previous survey two years before that, it was generally credit managers who were improving their scores more than equity managers. And it just reflects the way that response investment's been maturing Mm. in asset classes other than equities. Is that effectively because a few years ago, the view was, well, we're a bond manager, we buy bonds, so we don't get to vote on these things. So therefore, it's not something we need to look at to realising there actually can exercise a bit of a view in these, these areas. I think that's right. And there is greater recognition that bondholders can influence the way companies are run, that they they have a role in terms of engagement because they have influence when a company is looking to raise new finance and so on. But it's also greater recognition of how ESG factors can impact on investment performance. Two of the other challenges that are faced by fixed income investors are around sort of time scale and the upside versus downside potential. Mm. So in equities, we talk about the opportunities from ESG as well as the risk. Whereas in fixed income, it is about protecting against the downside. And then in terms of time horizon, often you've got a fixed term for investment, which is shorter than perhaps the time horizon used for equity analysis. And yet there's increasing recognition that ESG factors are not just long term issues, that they can and do bite over shorter time horizons. Mm -hmm. So you can't ignore them, even if you're a shorter term investor. And of course, we've got real assets in there as well. And Mm -hmm. I noticed in our survey, I think we were saying we found that 
was actually real asset managers taking into account climate risks at a security level more often than equity managers. I guess that's property and infrastructure managers who are looking at that quite closely as well. Yes, because real assets are often very long-lived. They are particularly exposed to physical risks from climate change. If you're building new infrastructure or property or indeed buy existing assets, then you need to think about their exposure to things like increased flooding risk, vulnerability to extreme weather and things like that. So it's a very real consideration in that space. One of the other things we see on the, on the property side is interest in energy efficiency. So building oh, course, standards yeah. are yeah. rising. And so a key thing to look for in property portfolios is the energy efficiency ratings of, of the buildings and the measures that are being taken to improve those. So Dan, we've talked a lot about the kind of the theory and what managers are doing in sort of in practice and in theory. How have you found your clients have reacted to all of this? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think you do genuinely see a range. You see increasingly more clients where their pension schemes who have a sponsoring employer who's taking a much more considered stance towards some of these issues at a corporate level and so have sort of high-level corporate policies that are pushing towards net zero carbon emissions by a certain point in time. And so more and more see trustees actually taking that bit more seriously as to how that should play into the pension scheme. Um, and so you're definitely seeing clients push us more on... ESG ratings, I think, for managers that we're putting forward, certainly for new manager selections, wanting to see that all the managers being put forward have something really good to say on this and and that all the managers are rating highly on the sort of areas we've looked at, particularly in certain areas we've discussed. And and actually emerging market equities has been one of those where I've had clients query some of the approaches that managers are taking there, what good looks like there, because clearly it's a different environment to develop market equities. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen a move away from passive as a result of discussions on ESG? Because I guess, as we've already talked about, there are bits that passive managers can do, but active managers have a lot more control in really sort of exhibiting these views properly. Yeah, that's the big question, I think. The answer is it could, but I haven't really seen it happen in practice yet. I think you're right in terms of expressing investment views, passive managers clearly don't do that. But obviously what we are seeing, maybe Claire, you could share with extra things you see, but we see more and more products being launched, which are effectively passive trackers of climate tilted or more broader ESG tilted indices. So they're passive investments, but mm. they're aiming at some of these companies and investments that are more forward thinking in terms of their, their stance on these issues. I think it's fair to say that we've seen most interest to date from clients in the passive products, particularly mm. things like climate tilted passive products. Taking account of a broader range of ESG factors in the passive products is a bit problematic in my view. We talked earlier about ESG data quality and I have concerns about the appropriateness of some of the metrics that are used in the ESG tilted Mm. passive products. And so I think that then opens up a conversation with clients about whether they want to go down that route or whether, in fact, an active management approach is more suited to taking account of those wider ESG metrics. Is that because some of these factors can just point you in completely different directions depending on which factor you're looking at, and so you can end up with a a confusing picture? Yes, and also that if you get different data providers, they will give you differing (laughs) views on the same factor. There is actually a surprising lack of correlation between the different data providers, and it means that Mm. if you were to construct two ESG indices in essentially the same way, but using the scores from one provider for the first one and the second provider for the other one, you could be investing quite differently for yeah. reasons that are perhaps not sound. And I guess, Claire, you and I did some work last summer on, mm-hmm. on this exact topic. And, and actually, it was quite interesting just to look at the different data providers. And they all characterise ESG in very subtly different ways because they're coming from different angles and they're all, they all sound valid. 
But as you said, they actually give quite different results in some That's cases. right, which means that if you're going to invest in one of those passive products, you really need to understand the underlying aims of mm. the data that's being used. You know, when a provider comes up with an ESG score for a particular company, what is it trying to capture in that? Mm. And is that reflecting your ESG beliefs and the way that you want it to be reflected in the investments that you're making? So your advice would broadly be it's better if you focus on more specific factors like climate rather than trying to focus on a broader range of my personal preference is to focus on climate and passive products and then use the stewardship activities alongside that to right. address mm. other ESG issues. But if investors want to take account of other ESG factors, then either they can spend time drilling into the detail of some of the ESG passive approaches and getting comfortable with that or yeah. potentially look at some active management. And your preference for climate, is that because the data is better or it's a more objective way of measuring that particular factor? There are a couple of reasons. One is because I think the data is better. There is greater availability of data. It's more robust. There's greater correlation between different data providers. But it's also that it's very clearly investment relevant. The financial case for taking account of climate change is very well established. Whereas one of the challenges with other ESG metrics is working out which ones are likely to be material to investment performance. That is more challenging. I guess thinking about my clients, I've, I've got a number of clients that are sort of, there's the regulation driving some of the discussions. And I've got a number of clients that are sort of doing a bit more than sort of base level requirement. I do have a couple of clients that are really much more interested in this. And I guess if there's a client that's or an investor that's really interested in exploiting these RI issues in, in a much more active way, what sort of products are out there? We're seeing quite a number of new products coming to market. Some of them will be badged as what we call sustainable funds. So rather right. than just deeply integrating ESG into the investment process. They're going one step further to say that they would only invest in companies or securities that are aligned with sustainability targets in some shape or form. Okay. An even more advanced approach is to look at impact investing, which is where you're looking to invest in companies that are having a demonstrably positive social and or environmental impact. So that tends to be smaller companies who are actually providing solutions to issues around, say, climate change or water scarcity or improving access to healthcare education and and so on. So what sort of companies would you see sitting in those sorts of portfolios? What counts as a company with positive impact? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that you can get impact investment funds across a range of different asset classes. In the listed equity space, you tend to see a bias towards smaller and mid-cap companies because they tend to be at an earlier stage of their development. You do see companies across the full range of sectors, really, but perhaps Mm. a bias towards some of the manufacturing and technology sectors. Okay. It's worth noting that you also get impact investments in the private equity space. And indeed, some investors prefer that route to impact investing because you're having more direct involvement in financing the solutions of the future. Mm. And then, of course, you can get impact investing um, in fixed income through things like green bonds and social bonds. And then on the infrastructure side, things like sustainable infrastructure, social housing and things like that. Can you just explain green bonds and social bonds for those that haven't come across? Yes, of course. So these would be ones where the proceeds of the bond is earmarked for a specific purpose. So a green bond, the company would be required to use the proceeds from that bond for some specific green purposes or something like investing in renewable energy capacity or energy efficiency measures or something. And similarly on the social bonds, there's a specific social purpose for the money that's being raised. Changing tax slightly there, maybe at that point, maybe just zooming back up. I mean, we've heard a lot 
at the start of this year, obviously around Davos, and there's been a lot in the news around climate, and that's driven the debate around finance as well and all sorts of announcements this year. What else can we expect as we go through this year in terms of big high-profile announcements, particularly around its effect on investing and finance? Well, I think the really key thing this year, particularly for those that are based in the UK, is going to be the COP26 climate talks, right. which are taking yep. place in Glasgow in, right. in November. Okay. So that's, in November, yeah. that's the latest round of the international climate talks hosted by the UN. We're likely to see quite a lot of interest in climate change in the UK in the run up to that. The government, the UK government will be under pressure to be delivering ambitious climate policies to demonstrate that it's taking a world leading approach to mm. this. And so I think we, we will see a lot of interest across the spectrum over the course of the year. That activity will no doubt translate into interest among investors as well not least because Mark Carney will be taking on his new role as a climate ambassador with particular responsibility for the financial sector. So you, you think we'll see some public announcements from managers and banks and those sort of things as we come into that or just, or just shine another spotlight in the area as we come up to that period of time? I think we will see announcements from managers, a continuation of what we've seen in the last few years where there's been a continuous stream of thought leadership pieces and new products and commitments in relation to climate change and sustainable investment more generally. Right. And I guess our challenge will be cutting through that and, and working out which which bits illustrate action and which bits are just more talk. Indeed. And there's a couple more regulation things, aren't there, around some of the stewardship code and those sorts of things in the UK? Yes, yeah, so there are two important developments that I'm keeping an eye on at the moment. Right. So one of those is the new UK stewardship code. Yes. The code was first brought out in 2010 and was a world leader at the time. Right. Back in October, the Financial Reporting Council issued the new version, which is completely right. rewritten, much, oh, right. much more ambitious in scope. Okay. It extends to all assets now, whereas before it was just UK listed right. equities. Right. And it really is a game changer in terms of defining stewardship much more holistically and encouraging Mm. a focus on thinking about the investor's role in looking after the long-term functioning of investment markets rather than just focusing narrowly on the specific performance of individual assets. Who's that going to be relevant for and when does it come into force? So to speak? Well, technically it came into force on 1st of January this right, year. Okay. But in practice, to be a signatory to it, you have to issue annual stewardship reports with the first one due by March 2021. So 2020 is going to be the year when the FRC is reaching out to potential signatories to encourage them to get involved. Okay. And in terms of who those signatories are, the largest group will likely be investment managers, but it is also suitable for asset owners. And indeed, the new code makes clearer distinction between the expectations of those two groups. And then there's a third category, which is service providers, investment consultants like LCP, but also data providers and and so on. LCPs. Um, very pleased to say that that we have decided that we will sign up and become a signatory to to that code. Which is great to hear. Great. So do you think we'll see a series of announcements over the course of the year as people sign up to that? We may do. I think in practice we're going to see more activity in quarter one next Next year. year, year. But certainly for us, stewardship is going to be a big topic this year. And then the other big one, climate change. I know we've been talking about this a lot, but a particular development in the pensions industry is going to be some guidance for trustees that is coming out this year. There's an industry group at the moment that's working on putting together some guidance, which will be launched for consultation in the middle of March. And we're expecting that to be issued in final form in the second half of this year. Right. Right. So more regulation there focused on pension schemes. That's right. And this is going to be important in terms of setting out what schemes can do in practice to integrate climate risk into the way their schemes managed. Brilliant. So will that be practical type guidance that give trustees quite a clear steer then? Because I think historically, certainly with some of my clients that I've spoken to, there's been a lot of you should think about this, you should think about that, but not necessarily the link with the practical actions. 
that can be taken? I believe that it will. The group's brief is to frame their recommendations around something called the TCFD, which is, it stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Right. So the ultimate aim is for pension schemes to be able to disclose their climate activities in line with those recommendations, mm. which fall under four headings. One is governance, mm-hmm. another is strategy, risk management, metrics and targets. Right. And in practice, if you are doing all of the things necessary to produce a really good disclosure under those four areas, actually you're going to have pretty strong climate risk management practices as well. Okay. Fantastic. Great. Okay. Well, we're starting to wind up there, perhaps. So how can listeners contact you and find your stuff and read the things that you've, many things you've written on this topic? The easiest thing to do is just to go to the LCP website, um, type in my name, it'll bring up not only my bio, but also all sorts of response investment publications I've been involved in over the years. Fantastic. And Claire, do you have any recommendations for listeners, books, articles, podcasts? anything like that? Well, I mentioned at, at the beginning Capitalism as if the world matters, which was the mm. book that sort of got me interested in this mm. topic in the first place. Yeah. If I had to pick out another one, I would suggest The Origin of Wealth by Eric Beinhocker, which is look at how the economy essentially is a complex adaptive system. So it can't be reduced to some of its parts. You need to study it holistically. Okay. And that provides a really different perspective on the way that the economy and, and the financial system work. Fantastic. Great. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Okay, now it's time for the quickfire round. I'm going to ask you a series of choices between two things. And the context is, which of the following do you back for the next decade? And of course, we won't hold you to any of them, but we <laughs> maybe secretly we really will. So, developed markets or emerging markets? Emerging. Active or passive? Active. Solar energy or nuclear energy? Solar. Climate science or computer science as a degree? Ooh, computer science. JLo or Taylor Swift? I haven't a clue. <laughs> but from a purely singing perspective, I thought you might have a... Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake? <laughs> no view. Okay, and finally, AI, threat or opportunity? Oh, it's both. I am a risk professional by heart, I think, so I would say threat. Thank you. And final question from me, Claire. What do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing? Well, if we go back to our, my favourite topic of climate change, there is so much talk about it, but I think there's underappreciation of just the nature of the changes that it will entail mm-hmm. and sort of too much focus on the sort of the quick wind, do things like the shift to electric vehicles and not thinking about the more fundamental shifts in society that we might need to see. So things like right. travelling less and travelling more by public transport mm. and then thinking through what that means for investment um, mm. and looking at some wow. of the... Yeah. Some of the alternatives that we might need in future the sort of technologies and things that make that shift in lifestyles possible right and you can see real potential opportunities there you know if you pick that trend out target the companies that you know will do well from that that's right yeah Yeah. electric scooters maybe i don't know that's (laughs) gonna be legal we'll see Well, Claire, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. There's so much we could have said. And hopefully we can get you back on the podcast later this year uh, to catch up in a bit more detail on some of these areas. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really makes a difference and we do really appreciate it. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut. podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.